turn in the Word of God this morning to 1 Thessalonians, Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 4. Going through this epistle, it was the end of July when we were last in chapter 3. So we're picking up again at the beginning of chapter 4. Looking at this first of Paul's epistles in terms of the chronology. Early on in his ministry, this church is established. Tremendous work is done, and he has to leave very quickly from their presence because of persecution and risk of his own life. But he seeks to find out how they're doing, and in response, he sends this letter. And we're actually going to be coming at some point very soon to some of the questions that were in the minds of the church, wondering about certain things. And so you have there, for example, in verse 9 of chapter 4, as touching brotherly love. This is a response to a question that they asked. You have also in verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. So there were some questions that were in their minds that Paul addresses as well. So let us read from the first verse of chapter 4 through to the end of verse 8. Let us hear the word of the Lord as it is before us in this portion. Furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we give you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness." He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. Amen. Ending the reading there, may the Lord be pleased to enlighten our minds as we consider his word. Let's bow together in prayer again, beloved. Let's all seek the Lord's face. Never know exactly what we need at any given time, but the word is a living word. O God, we're thankful to return to this portion of Thy Word. The letter has already had much for us to consider, much application for our lives. And we pray that, as always, Thou wilt make us not merely hearers of the Word, but doers. To that end, we pray for the activity of the Spirit in our lives. We pray for a deepening work that makes us responsive to the Word of God in the way that pleases Thee. We pray that every heart here this morning would be like good ground, ready to receive the good seed of the Word. Thou knowest exactly what we need to hear. Thou knowest precisely how to address our fears, our weaknesses. Thou knowest exactly how to help us to achieve and accomplish Thy will in our lives. We've been singing this morning much that relates to doing the will, living lives that are according to Thy plan. And we pray that we might be a people that exhibit that, that whatever be our testimony, we would be a people that do know their God and follow in His ways. This morning, therefore, we pray, help us. Help hearer and preacher. May the Holy Ghost minister in that way that only He can, so that regardless of the preacher and whatever meditated thoughts there may be that come forth from the pulpit today, the Lord has a word for all of His sheep, that they feed on green pastures and beside still waters. Come, therefore, give us the Holy Ghost and build up thy church and extend thy kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
At the beginning of Luke chapter 11, we have a very familiar portion of the Word of God where the Lord Jesus evidently has been praying and the disciples have been watching on, waiting for him to come to a conclusion when one of them comes and asks, Lord, teach us to pray. And what follows immediately in the context there is the Lord giving us what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And as you go down through the lines of that, it's very familiar, no doubt, to everyone here. But I remember one time thinking about the Lord's Prayer and being struck by something that had never really dawned upon me before. And that was that as the Lord was teaching His people to pray and saying, pray ye in this manner, He was also helping them to understand how they should live. He has petitions in that prayer, of course, for example, where He says, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And by including that, of course, then anyone who would say, I need to pray this prayer, is obviously being called upon to live in such a fashion where we forgive everyone that is indebted to us. That we take that upon ourselves if we want to know the forgiveness of sins, those that truly know the forgiveness of sins also forgive others. We're also taught to pray, following that petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And as soon as you pray that prayer, it is also instructing your heart to avoid evil. That was the particular petition that struck me, that as I'm praying that the Lord would deliver me from evil, how foolish I would be to remove myself from that prayer, finish that prayer, and walk right into evil, as if it didn't matter, as if my obligation is is not significant in the affair. Clearly then the Lord is instructing our hearts as well as teaching us to pray that we are called upon not just to, in prayer, it's not just a matter of teaching the relational aspect, but there's also the instructional aspect. And you will know this as you have sat in prayer meetings before, whether knowingly or unknowingly, you are being instructed by the prayers of others. You sit and you hear them pray, you learn from them, especially in your early years as a Christian, And, I mean, I guess there's good in this and there's bad in it, but I came in as a, you know, a new believer at 19 years of age, never prayed before, didn't know much about prayer. I remember some prayers being offered in my presence down through the years, but not many. Certainly did not, I had no idea how to pray, but you sit in prayer meetings and you hear people pray, and you begin to follow. You you inevitably begin to pray in a similar fashion. And you hope that the examples around you are good examples, positive examples, but but you're being taught, you're being instructed. And so you hear them how they commence their prayer, the subjects that come up, the quests that they offer, you're being taught how to pray, pray. And the Lord, of course, teaches this as well. And it shows us not just how to pray, what petitions to offer, but also what our lives should look like. At the end of chapter 3 of this epistle, we left the Apostle Paul in the midst of his wish for the church in Thessalonica. The last three verses, if you were here and you remember, they form a desire. And the grammar of the language is a desire, like a benediction, formed in that way where he is in one sense addressing them, but he is also addressing God, reflecting his desire for them to the Lord. Now, God Himself, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way unto you. That's a prayer as well as a desire. And then He begins to address them, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another, and so on. In, in one sense, He's praying it. In another sense, He's speaking it to them, like a benediction. And this, this, this language where He expresses a desire for them, and you look at what He's wanting for them, to increase and abound in love one toward another, and toward all men, even as we do toward you, to the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And he moves in, in his desire, in his wish for them, into a matter of how they live their lives. 
But as he leaves this before them, as he records his wish, as he gives a little insight into his prayer life on their behalf, it was not enough for Paul just to leave it there. So he begins in chapter 4 to bring clear instruction, to show the people of God, to lay out before them precisely what their lives should look like. And so there's this general, very brief prayer, desire for their sanctification, their ongoing growth, that they might increase and abound in love, that they might become more in terms of holiness, what they are called to be before God, verse 13. But what does that look like? What does it look like in terms of what they're facing and what they're going through? And so you come to chapter 4 and he begins to deal with the subject of the Christian life. And he deals with holiness or sanctification and the specific aspects that come up from verse 3 and following. And, and this morning we're not going to get as far as that. We're going to just basically deal with the introduction in verses 1 and 2 where Paul leaves before them again this, this general desire for their spiritual well-being. And there's certain things for us to learn from this. But it's not that they're a bad church. Let, let's, not, let's not misunderstand. And Paul is not here rebuking them for serious want in their lives. He, is, he has made it abundantly clear, and I'm not going to go through all the verses again, any uh, half observing the language of this epistle in any kind of meaningful way at all, and you will see that Paul is commending them all the time from, from the very first verses. But at the same time, though he is full of commendation for them, just because he has been encouraged by what they have done and what they've accomplished and how they're being examples, if you read chapter 1, verse 7, yet at the same time, no matter who is an example, and if you look at any believer and you say, that person is an example to me, at the same time, we all have to admit that they still could be better, that none of us are the finished product. We are not at the end of where we are called to be. None of us. And Paul had absolutely no shame. He was not bashful at all. When he looked at the people of God and says, you're doing well. I'm encouraged by your progress that, that your examples throughout the entire region. And at the same time to say, you could do better. You could, you could improve. You could, you could help yourself in these areas. You, you need to address these points of the Christian life and, and work out the will of God further in your lives. Never mistaken spiritual complacency for spiritual rest. Spiritual rest is a real thing. The Lord Jesus promises, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. We enjoy spiritual rest. Every child of God has a right to spiritual rest. No child of God should ever find themselves in a place where they, they wonder whether or not the Lord has any rest for them. Christ is the rest for the sinner. There is a spiritual rest for every child of God at all times. But never, never get to a point where you, you look at your life and what is really spiritual complacency, you're saying, I'm just resting in the Lord. There's no place. I cannot find any place in the Word of God where we are encouraged to a condition of complacency. And that is why, again, the Apostle Paul, as he comes to some practical matters in chapter 4 and following, he, he has... He is not in any way shy to say, look, here are areas in your life, in the church life, that need to be addressed. And I'm going to help you. I'm going to point them out. And you continue to work on them. So, as we come to chapter 4 and we look at the opening two verses, we're considering it under the heading, uh, the title, Knowing How to Please God. Knowing How to Please God. You look there again at verse 1. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us, how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. First, note with me, 
the stimulus for this exhortation. The stimulus for this exhortation. What is it? Well, it begins first with language of request and entreaty. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you. So, so there is this exhortation. He is he's presenting them a, a longing. And the construction is not designed to reflect Paul throwing his apostolic authority around in order for them to get them in order to get them to do what he wanted them to do. The authority in this exhortation is actually found in the inclusion of our Lord Jesus. So again, read it. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus. And this is the stimulus for the exhortation. It's not Paul simply saying, I want you to do this. It is Paul speaking in the name of the Lord Jesus who sent him to be a light to the Gentiles, to plant churches, to help those churches, and to fulfill the Great Commission. Paul will do the same thing in his second epistle, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. It's by the Lord Jesus. It's not the only place where he does it. You will find it in other places in the New Testament as well. And this brings us then to consider the position of the believer before Jesus Christ. If, or should I say, since it is the Lord Jesus that is instructing us in the matters that are dealt with here, since specifically Paul is drawing our attention to the Lord Jesus as the instructor of the people of God in this context, then it's important for us to remember again the position of every child of God in relation to their Savior. There are some, and I very, doubt, I very much doubt anyone here, or certainly there are not many here, that would be lumped into the position of, of thinking that you can have the salvation purchased by Christ and not in some way be obligated to serve Him and reflect your love toward Him and have a heart that's transformed that desires to serve Him with all of your being. I imagine the vast majority, if not every single child of God, here this morning understands that. You grasp it. So what I'm dealing with again this morning is not something necessarily new. But I think it's helpful for us again to remember our relationship to the Son of God. And that it is not just we receive for him, from Him the benefits of the forgiveness of sins, the position we have in Him, adopted into the family of God, and the tremendous privileges that, are, that belong to the children of God. All of those things are ours, yes. But to understand who He truly is and His right to speak into your life. On the day of Pentecost when Peter stood before that predominantly Jewish congregation, he says at the very end of his sermon, at least how it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. The Jews knew that the one that had been crucified just over a month prior, they knew that his name was Jesus. They called him Jesus. They referred to him as Jesus of Nazareth or some description like that. There was no deny because that was the name that was given to him in his humanity. But what Peter draws to their attention and what he's been building up to and not to go back into that sermon and and pull out everything that is there, but what he is helping them to see is that that Jesus fulfilled the prophets, fulfilled what David spoke about, what the other passages that he quotes, Joel, the Psalms, so on, that this one that they crucified fulfilled all those prophecies, and that the one that they crucified was not just Jesus of Nazareth, but by His death and by His resurrection has been set apart as Lord and Christ, evidently the Christ of God, and now evidently the Lord of all. And that's how he concludes his sermon. He brings it there, 
And, and they are left with that sense of conviction, smitten in their hearts with an understanding of the gravity of their sin. Men and brethren, what shall we do? We haven't just killed a man, but this man is our Messiah, and he has been made Lord. And fear, no doubt, grips some of their hearts as they realize the, the consequences of their actions. The Lord Jesus, the man that was crucified, the Jewish Messiah, the Savior of men, by His perfect obedience to the Father, has earned the right to a place of authority ruling in heaven as Lord over all things. And that's why Peter brings out not just that he was and is the Messiah, but he is both Lord and Christ. This aspect is vital for us to understand because it places the Lord Jesus in his humanity in a position of authority. Now we understand that he inherently has a place of authority as a son of God. As the second person of the Trinity, we understand he has a position of inherent authority over the entire world, over the entire universe. But as he lived as a mediator, he earns authority and earns the right to ascend to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns. Turn for a moment to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. the end of Ephesians 1, Paul prays, the first of his prayers in this epistle, and he is looking, he's asking God to enlighten them. You see from verse 17, giving them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and so on. And you come to verse 20, which he wrought in Christ, that's the power that rose him from the dead, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand. You can see here, because of what he did, he is set at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now this is a glorious truth for the believer. It gives confidence to the child of God, the one who's washed in the Redeemer's blood, the one who knows they belong to him. It gives confidence that the ultimate authority they live under is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the one who cares for them, loves them, laid down his life for them, will return for them and gather them to be with him forevermore. That this one rules over all. He is the head over all things to the church. That's a wonderful truth. Not to get sidetracked, but just to see he's the head over all things to the church. In relation to the church, he governs all things in light of the needs of his church. As he reigns over the affairs of men, it is always keeping in mind his church as the Sovereign and the Most High executes His decree upon this earth. He has His people in mind, always. And so never forget that. Never forget that when He raises up one and brings down another in every political campaign and all that goes on in the world, as Christ rules over all, is always with a mind to His church. He is ru ruling His affairs in light of the church and the need of the church. And never, never has He ever placed a dictator or permitted a dictator or allowed a certain personality to rule or to be in a place of authority without considering the effect and the impact upon his church. It's greatly comforting. Greatly comforting. When we understand that Christ is aware of all the consequences of having certain individuals rule in the affairs of men and realize that he is over all of that and he is permitting all that and using all that and and, and, and being sovereign over all of that to benefit his church. But while he rules in love and kindness toward us, he still rules over all, including us, and we have obligations to him. 
Now, the Lord never hid this from us. Never. He never kept it a secret. He never said, look, I'll give you all these wonderful benefits. And then there's like the small print, <laughs> which, which you find out later how certain repercussions that, that you didn't think you signed up for, and it doesn't seem fair. The Lord never did that. He was always up front, very clear. Mark 8, 34, When he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And this is not the only place. Other places where you find similar language, I think Luke 9, Luke 14, you have him presenting over and over again this, this position, this, this, this call, if you want me, if you want to belong to me, the benefits of being my people, following me, it will require self-denial. It will require the setting aside and the resignation of your own claim to authority. You're now my subject. You're under my dominion. And that is what Paul is reminding those in this church in the opening language of this chapter, chapter 4 of First Thessalonians. Furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus. That is by Him. This is, this is the stimulating factor that He is he's presenting before them. That look, when we came and we presented the gospel to you, we did not hide the Lordship of Christ from you. We did not try to, in some way, say you can have this wonderful position of your sins being washed away and never having a sense of being guilty before God. You can have all of that and no obligations of loyalty to the one who accomplished it for you. That was not the message. That was not the path he led them down. So they're aware. And as he presents before them again, obligations, responsibilities, the call to a certain way of living, he reminds them, look, look, that's <laughs> by the Lord Jesus. I'm presenting this in the name of the Lord. The one you surrendered your life to. The one you owe your life to. Remember Him and what He has done for you. It ought to be a source of curiosity to us that people will attempt to accept the benefit of Christ's redemptive work without the obligations that come by becoming a subject to Him in His kingdom. If he rules, then he rules over me. And if he rules over me, it is not for me simply to sit on the sidelines and have my own little independent kingdom within his. It's not how it works. I have resigned my will. I have given up my claim to authority. I have given him my life and my heart. And as I've said many times, in the example of the Apostle Paul himself, upon the moment of his conversion, upon the recognition of who it was that was meeting with him on the Damascus road, his response immediately is, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He is aware if I mean, he is able to process instantly that he is not about, he is no more laying any claim to independence, to his own rights. It's all about him. So whenever you read language of the apostle beseeching you, exhorting you, by the Lord Jesus, hear the voice of the Master. The stimulus for this exhortation is by the Lord Jesus. It's His will being reflected. It is His mind and it's obedience to Him that moves us to respond to this exhortation aright. Secondly, the subjects of their emulation. What was the subjects of their emulation? Well, you can see what he writes when he continues that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. As ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God. 
The heart of the exhortation is a call to greater holiness of life. How ye ought to walk and to please God. Again, don't miss what Paul is saying. He is not saying that they are not in any way. That he's not trying to make them see that you're not walking in the Lord's ways. He has repeatedly said the opposite of that. That they are. That they are continuing on. That they are being faithful and so on. But there's always, there's always room to follow more. And as I said already, he is not shy to say, look, you're doing great. Keep going on. Push a little further. Now, by his language, it is very clear to me that the believer can walk in such a way to please God. That you can walk in such a way so as to please God. God. And I know that some will immediately go, but, but wait a minute. Are we not so full of sin that that's impossible? Is it not impossible for me to please God? Well, how do you reconcile this portion? Clearly, Paul is saying, you can walk in such a way as to please God. You can. And this is how you should walk, in a way that pleases God. So how do we reconcile it? Well, for those that are not in adult Sunday school, Mr. Farr presently is in the chapter that deals with good works, and that chapter is very helpful in addressing this very problem as we might see it. How, if I'm so sinful, if I'm not made perfect in this life, how is it that I can walk in such a way that pleases God? How, how is that possible? Well, the confession addresses it all the proof texts that gather in passages like this. But I'll, I'll read some of it for you. I'll just uh, pull in some of the sentences that you'll find in chapter 16 of the Confession of Faith because it teaches there the Christian's, quote, ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. That's the first thing. It's not by you that you're ever going to live in a way that pleases God. So, Get that clear in your mind. It is not me, by my power, by my wisdom, by my strength, I can please God. It is by the Spirit. Furthermore, our good works, quote, are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection. So, we can do good works by the Holy Ghost. But those good works are still defiled and full of imperfection. Then, paragraph 6 says this. I'll read all of this paragraph. Notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that He, looking upon them in His Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. It is the mediation of Christ. You have the, the Spirit of God leading you to good works. You have Christ mediating those good works so that you live your life in such a fashion that is pleasing to God. Believers will do good works. And they will do good works that are accepted by God because they originate by the Spirit and are acceptable through our union to Jesus Christ. And that's, that's how you reconcile it, beloved. It's not that you become perfect. It's not that you become where you say you please God, and that means I'm doing everything perfectly like the Lord did Himself. You will never reach that level of purity and holiness this side of glory. But, but... What He has purchased for you, what He has given to you, when the Spirit of God comes into your heart and life, and we might consider some of this tonight, God willing. We dealt with it a little last week. But the Spirit of God comes to empower us to live the Christian life. And through the mediation of Christ, through our union to Him, it is possible for us to please God. Now that should be embraced 
with, with such zeal that we should be amazed that it's possible that I can please God. And to recognize that it's only through the merits of Christ, only through the blood atonement, only through what the Lord Jesus has done for us, yes, He gets all the praise. But to condescend and offer a salvation, provide a salvation, where I actually can be considered a person that does good, even though I fall so far short. Scripture speaks of those that were good men. Joseph of Arimathea. In Luke 23 is recorded, he was a good man and a just. Darkness in Acts 9, this woman was full of good works. God saw them all, recognized them. Barnabas, he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. These are people that please God. They walked so as to please God. They were examples for the church. They were people that others looked up to and say, that person, you could actually say, they please God. Again, you may see their imperfections. You may see their inconsistencies. There would have been times where people may have been able to point the finger and say they're not perfect. But the tenor of their life, as they lived empowered by the Spirit of God, and they gave themselves to obey the Word as they found it, as they understood it, and applied themselves to an obedient life for Christ, it was said, it could be said of them, that they walked in such a fashion that pleased God. I'm, I'm challenged by this. I hope you are too. Paul sees this young church doing remarkably well. If only every church, every place where he went and tried to plant a church turned out like this, <laughs> he would be a very joyful servant of the Lord. And in spite of that, I mean, being an example to the entire territory, even with that, he still pushes them a little more. Now, we may claim to be mature in and of ourselves. Some of you have sat under solid, sound, biblical, good teaching for decades. You, you, you've been nourished in sound words. And no matter what that has led to with regard to the accomplishment in your life, no matter how that has had a, its sanctifying work in leading you and pushing you and encouraging you and causing you to serve the Lord in the way that you have or the way that you presently do, there's, there's, still, there's still room, is there not? So ye would abound more and more. That's what he wants. The apostle wants to see them keep going on. Now, they had been, the apostles themselves had exemplified, and this is really the point here, that as ye have received of us, you received it of us. You saw how we walked, how we lived, what we said. You're living testimonies to the way we conducted ourselves in your midst. You you have your memories of, and he talks a lot in this epistle about remember, remember, remember this. And he calls them to remember. And they would remember with fond memories these individuals who came with a message that was liberating and life transforming and turned their entire world around. For some of them, it was no doubt only positive. For some of them, there were consequences to obeying Christ and they would have been excluded from their families and cut off from loved ones and there would have been lots of suffering as, as a result of their commitment to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But there was no regrets. And they saw these men come. And again, the apostle, who no doubt was a primary example to the early church, his commitment, his love, his obedience, his service, his holiness of life, that is all beyond question. And when we look at his life, and we look at him speaking autobiographically, 
referring to his own experience. And you, you go to Philippians chapter 3 and you read down through the language there and you see a man who's not content. I count not myself to have apprehended. I'm not the finished article. I'm not the perfect person. There's only one perfect man. And so I press toward the mark. I push on. I drive forward. But Paul was not content to live such a life where he would elevate himself above all others and leave them in the dark and in ignorance as to how the Christian life should be lived and live in some throne of pride as to the achievements of him in terms of his sanctification and holiness. That was never his goal or his aim. His goal is to bring people with him, to lift the church up, to lift the people of God up, to bring all the believers along with him in this journey of progressing to become more like the Lord Jesus. And so his heart, his heart beats, longs for the forward movement of every individual child of God. He wants them to join with them. He longs for them to enter into the burden, to, to have this desire to keep pressing on, beloved. No matter what you've attained, no matter what you've achieved, no matter how the Lord and His grace has made you an example to others, don't sit there and become complacent. Keep going on. This is the exhortation from the Lord. You received it of us, how you ought to walk and to please God. Oh, that you would abound more and more. Paul says to them, everything you remember from what we did and what we said, put it into practice more and more. All the instruction, all the example, put it into practice more and more. Now, believer, think of the examples you've had in your life. Godly parents, godly grandparents, godly individuals in your life and other areas that in the providence of God have been brought across your path. Think of them all. Let, 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 let the most eminent of them arise in your memory. Let the words and instruction you receive from them come back to your heart. Let the dedication of their lives be a, a present example for you, even today. Let it all come back, and as you've received of them, how you ought to walk and to please God, Abound more and more. Abound more and more. Are there things that you were taught that you have perhaps forgotten, things that you were instructed in that you have left by the wayside? An example that was before you that you always intended to follow, but you've never really, you've never really give, given yourself to. Let that come with challenge again to your heart. God so mercifully often puts people in our lives that are forever etched in our memory as examples for us to follow. And even though they're, they may but presently be just a memory for us, having already attained the reward and gone to glory, yet their memory continues to speak to us and to challenge us. And this is how Paul is directing the minds of this church. He did the same to the Philippians when he says in Philippians 4 verse 9, those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. Every way you've been taught, all that you've heard, all that you've seen, do it. Do it, do it. Keep it, keep it at the forefront of your mind. Keep it, keep it always before you. Don't forget. Don't forget. Don't commit the sin of forgetting. Remember. Remember the example. Remember the fervor. Remember the diligence. Remember the love. Remember the concern. Remember the hard work. Remember, remember it all that is good and positive and exemplary and, and let it come with challenge to your heart. Let it cause you to abound more and more. Abound more and more. Don't get comfortable. Abound more and more. That's the message. So this is how he begins. As he lays out a call to sanctification. 
there is no experience of sanctification if there's not a sense of the need of personal progress. Sanctification, by its very nature, is a continual dying on to sin, living on to righteousness. It is therefore a continual going forward. And we all have our ebbs and our flows, our highs and our lows, our days of advancement, our days of declension and backsliding. Paul knows that. He sees the church going on so well. He commends them over and over again, but he leaves no room for complacency. He does not allow them for a moment to think, hey, we've arrived. <laughs> he does exactly what the Christ Commission called him to do. Seeing them converted, he teaches them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. To observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So I lay this matter before you, beloved. Many of you are mature. I've been watching your lives, some of you, as the Lord has given opportunity to observe on various occasions. And some of you have been on a means of encouragement and challenge. And I'm learning. I'm learning just by watching you. Hearing. And rejoicing. And yet, though some of you have been a, a, a point of conviction <laughs> in my own life, and I thank the Lord for it, I say to you, go on. Abound more and more. Don't stop where you are. Go on. Thirdly, then, the source of their education. Verse 2. The source of their education. Really, just briefly looking at this, and some things we can learn. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. This refers to what Paul and others had taught them, not the knowledge that they had attained from the Scriptures directly. But for our purposes, it is the same, whether it is what we have all that we have, whether it's apostolic or from the Lord Himself or what's revealed to us in the Old Testament Scriptures, all of it is, is given from the Lord. It's all profitable to us. They were living in a time where there was not the completion of the canon. They, they had not all been written. So, so they, they would read the Old Testament Scriptures and they would, they would understand all that they could from that as well as being told about the life of the Lord Jesus and the apostolic insight into living the Christian life. So they had received this largely orally, combined with the Old Testament Scriptures, and you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. You know, again, calling them to remember. Use your memory to glorify God, and you know what commandments we give you by the Lord Jesus. The Lord gives commandments. As much as this day despises that kind of thing. Everyone wants to be master of their own lives. Let it never, or God forbid that it should ever enter into the mind of the believer that they can live before Christ on their terms. This underscores again the point that we've already made. We are subject to Him. Ye know what commandments we give you. That's what Christ gives. He gives commandments. One writer says, Christ does not appeal to men as the heathen philosophers did. They ask opinions, court criticism, and even the wily and garrulous Socrates gives men an opportunity of differing from him. But Christ, with the authoritative tone and earnestness of the Son of God, says, this is absolute. 
believe it and be saved or reject it and be damned. And again, this is what the church needs reminded of. These are not matters of debate. Christ does not enter into dialogue with his people to learn of their suggestions and get feedback that he might, again, help in terms of the direction of the kingdom of Christ. He gives commandments. He sits on his throne and declares his will. And you either submit and you kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, or you will perish. You will suffer. Let that be known to everyone here this morning. If you are not already a subject to Christ, you will perish. You will suffer beyond your comprehension. You should kiss the sun. That is make reconciliation with the one you have offended. Seek him for mercy. Be reconciled to God. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from a life of disobedience. It may have seemed, it may seem that you're getting away with it. And oh, how many have lived out through years thinking they're getting away with some partial obedience to Christ. Saul fell into that trap, didn't he? Saul thought it was fine, just a measure of partial obedience and go and kill that king and wipe out everything. And he goes and Samuel comes and he says, I have, I have fulfilled, I've done the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel goes, well, what's the bleating? I'm hearing bleating and the lowing of the cattle. That's not, that was not what you were given to do. You've set yourself above the commandment of the Lord. You went into the matter and you thought to yourself, well, I'll execute it, but I'll do it on my own terms. God took the kingdom from him. Saul suffered unimaginably because he was convinced that by partial obedience it would be sufficient. And how many, how many are in Greenville? How many are in Greenville living their Christianity on their own terms, thinking to themselves that they can circumvent the commandments of Christ and make little changes that they think there'll be no consequences to? Oh, how they're in for a rude awakening. You know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Obey the commandments. Give yourself to the Word. And a wonderful thing will happen if you do. I'm not saying your life will go just perfectly as if everything will fall into place and all your dreams will come true. But I'll tell you what will happen. Psalm 1 will happen. No matter what famine is around you, you'll find yourself like a tree planted by the rivers of water. No matter what else is going on in your life, you'll find that you're still bringing forth fruit in your season. I was amazed recently considering Joshua again. Turn over to Joshua chapter 1 just for a moment. We'll close in just, just one moment. Joshua chapter 1. Moses is dead. Joshua is called to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. Now, the Lord says to him, repeatedly calls him to be strong and of good courage. Verse 6, verse 7, be strong, very courageous. He says that thou mayest observe to do, verse 7, according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee, turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Joshua is about to enter into 
well, he is called to lead not just the nation, but specifically in terms of its military conflict with the inhabitants that are still in the land. He's called to a plethora of, of, of things that he needs, he needs to know how to be a leader. He needs to know how to lead an army. He needs to know how to enter into military conflict. He needs, all, he needs to know the strategy. He needs all of, all of that. And the Lord says to him that the key to his success does not lie in studying the military battles of the past and strategies that they may learn from of previous battles engaged in by others. It does not call him to be a master leader and learn from all the literature of the day that tells you how to lead a country, lead a nation, be a political figure, be a kind of business CEO character, whatever. The key to his success, to his prosperity, is in one thing. Give yourself to the Word. Know it and do it. That's it. Not even all that we have here, just the first five books. Keep reading them. Keep studying them. Keep meditating in them. Keep giving yourself to them. Keep executing yourself in terms of, of practicing all that it calls you to be and to do. That is it. You will lead the nation. You will win the warfare. You will inherit the land. It will all be yours. Success, prosperity, blessing is found in obeying the Word. Now, here we are, centuries and centuries later, and we are more evolved and more developed and more advanced and we now think that, well, it's not just the Word we need. We need all the wisdom of this current generation, all the psychology, all the philosophy. We need all of that to, success, to, to succeed, to, to, to advance. And you know what it is? You know what it is? Deep down, it is a rejection of the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't actually believe the Word is sufficient. We're not convinced that it really is the only thing we need. So we go to this, and we go to that, and we go to the other. And I'm not in any way against other things in terms of the help, I have read many a book and many of them have been helpful. I'm not against it. Not against learning from history. Not against any of that. But there, there is an element where I think many of us, I include myself, can easily fall into the trap where really we don't believe the Word is all we need. Read it, memorize it, apply it, share it. This is the way of true prosperity. Oh, we may have our hardships. Joshua certainly had them. Difficulties, battles, we're not in glory yet. But that sense of continued inner peace and forward advancement and sanctification of our own lives and glorifying the Lord no matter the circumstances will come not by quaint sayings, but by the Word of God gripping our hearts. When I actually believe this is... And look, this, this is entering into all sorts of areas. I do not have time to begin to address how we begin to philosophize put ourselves above the Word of God is plain teaching in terms of the instruction and discipline of children. And we've taken new ideas, new, completely ludicrous interpretations of Scripture to cause us to fit alongside with the modern psychology of the best way of raising children. 
which sets aside how the Lord uses. He uses the rod of correction in lives. But now we know better. It amazes me that people can't join the dots. <laughs> Look where we are. And what have we forsaken that has brought us to this point? Beloved, I simply say again, the Lord Jesus wants you, calls you, through the language of the apostle given to us here, but spirit inspiring every single word being God-breathed, calling you to walk and to please God. To abound more and more. <laughs> to apply yourself. That's, there's more I wanted to say, but my time is gone. But consider this. May the Lord encourage your hearts by this simple fact. He, though it seems so hard for us and we feel so weak in and of ourselves, He has given power for us to actually do what is written in His Word. Let us by faith lay claim to the Spirit let us by faith trust in his word and rest that he knows best. May it be our guard and our guide every day of our lives. Let's bow together in prayer. You're here this morning struggling with a sense of whether it be guilt or a grief of heart that you're not pleasing the Lord. The worst thing you can do is fight it and to say to yourself that it doesn't really matter it will pass. I'll feel fine in five or ten minutes. The Lord, through His Word, is always graciously just nudging us on. And I'm so thankful for that. I, it's an awful place to be when we find ourselves complacent. To use Scripture at ease in Zion. And it's always a very easy place to fall into, especially in days of prosperity and relative ease in our lives. May His Word move us to give ourselves afresh and put ourselves under the word to be taught and instructed in his will. Father, we're thankful for thy word. We're thankful for always knowing exactly what we need. And we are thankful that every word of God is pure. And it's sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. God, help us. Help us to receive the engrafted word not just to the salvation of our souls but to the continual saving of our lives the purifying of our hearts by faith and conforming us to the image of thy son we're thankful that our Lord Jesus cares about how we live he has our welfare in mind and upon his heart let us never doubt his love or question his wisdom.
but be his willing subjects within his kingdom. So as a congregation, we give thanks to the, to, for the level of maturity and example already exhibited in this congregation. We give thee the glory for the good in this church. And we praise thee, O God, for all that can be, all that can redound to the glory of God that goes on in the life of this body. We give thee the glory. But help us to abound more and more that thou wilt receive more praise. Hear us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.